Hello, and welcome to episode 30 of the Network Collective Community Roundtable. In episode 28, we had Nick Baraglio and Tom Hollingsworth on to talk about networkers' favorite subject, NAT. In that conversation, we started down the path of how NAT impacts or doesn't impact your privacy as you browse the internet. In today's episode, we're going to continue that conversation and discuss the broader implications of privacy to network engineers and architects. Sponsoring today's episode, in part, is CoreBTS. CoreBTS is a relationship-focused, value-added reseller who wants to help you take your infrastructure to the next level. Also sponsoring today's episode is Cumulus Networks. Cumulus is bringing soul to the network. Simple, open, untethered Linux. So stay tuned, and we'll hear more about today's sponsors later in the show. Also, we wanted to remind you about the Network Collective community membership. Network engineers connect the world, and networks are the unsung enablers of modern life. But where do network engineers go to network with one another? We're building a community of like-minded networkers who want to excel at their craft and connect the planet. If this sounds interesting to you, head on over to thenetworkcollective.com and check out what our community membership is all about. So guys, welcome back. How are we doing? Thanks for, thanks for having us back. I, uh, I figured we thanks. said everything we needed to say, but uh, I guess we didn't. Absolutely not. <laughs> I don't not think you, Tom. I don't and think not Nick either. I was going to say I don't think either of you have opinions that stop. <laughs> right. That's accurate. <laughs> Very accurate. So, I mean, in the last show, uh, episode 28, like we said at the top here, uh, we kind of went, started going down this path where we were talking about privacy and the implications of NAT on privacy. And I think we all kind of took a step back and said, wait a minute, that really could be its own show. There's just enough content there. There's no way we could cover it and talk about NAT again, because I don't think one show was enough to talk about NAT, let alone the privacy angle. So I think we're going to start where we left off there. We're going to talk specifically about NAT um, and, and specifically about IPv6 Slack and, and its relation to privacy. Um, but then we'll probably pull out and take a, a broader look after that. Um, so let me start with a very simple question. Does NAT provide any semblance of privacy while you're browsing online? I think the answer that's probably, if you want, if you have to answer in a black or white answer, it's yes, because you're obfuscating your source uh, address behind some other masquerading device. If specific, you're specifically talking about port address translation. Right. That, that distinction does matter. Port address translation. So what we're talking about here specifically is the idea edge middle box. You're assuming the outside IP or an IP assigned to it so that your IP never makes it out on the web. Um, that's, that's definitely what we're talking about here. Um, so I, it, that looked like it was painful. Are you feeling all well, right there? It's not really <laughs> a yes or no answer, right? I mean, if you have to give a yes or no answer, yes, it definitely obfuscates the source IP address because it's private and non-globally routable. But there's so many things that are embedded in your browser and, you know, in the communications that's happening with whatever sites you're talking to and all the advertising junk that's tied to those sites that I would say that that is a, you know, a, it's, it's really a, you know, a feather in a, in a tornado. And I think, I think what's giving Nick so much pause there is, is 
that so many folks have have leaned on NAT and implied that NAT provides greater security than it does. And so being forced to answer that question that way is a little bit painful because it feels like it might be misleading. It's you, you have you have privacy. No one can directly communicate with your endpoint machine, but it's not like you're browsing from behind a Tor node. If someone figures out the public address you're coming from, they can find your office. It's like that movie thing where they like geolocate you to like this office in Santa Clara. Okay, now we've gotten it down to two hundred computers. Yeah, well, I, I'm kidding. I, 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 I do reverse lookups on machines all the time when they leave hateful comments on my blog, and most of the time they're in Canada. But it's it, you're not really obfuscating much. I mean, okay, I know what ISP you're using. All right. I mean, but let's talk about the because what led us down this path was IPv6 and Slack. Oh, wait a minute. Nick has Nick. Nick wants to. So comment. I think I think the thing that makes people think that you get a. Uh, you know, a, a tiny little sliver of privacy is that in the olden days, when I could say, I know what your IP address is, and I can like ping flood you, or I could, you know, wind nuke you or whatever, I'm dating myself, obviously, but like, you know, all those things were very possible, because there was a raw IPv4 address that was available, and I could see that. So directly communicating, like, I can't ping your host, right? I can ping your you know, your middle box, and I can probably ping flood it off of the planet if I really want to. So like, really all you're getting is I can't directly poke. I'm, so it's like poking someone with a shirt on, right? I'm still poking them. They're just a thin layer of cotton right there. And that's what Nat is, it's a thin layer of cotton. So let, I want to I want to plan a thought in your head to think about later once we get done with the Slack conversation. I would argue that having a middle box doing that kind of translation is actually causing more problems because now instead of you know when nuking one machine off the internet if i nuke that middle box i can knock out a thousand and that's uh you know that's that's not a privacy issue i mean that's a that's a, a major problem with the way that the internet is architected now there are too many choke points for that, that but, that's I a mean, very real very real risk assessment line item when you're doing risk assessment on wan connectivity is I fully expect to fail closed, right? And for so, enterprises, so, that might be the way they want to do it. Hey, so Russ, Tom, let me Russ ask you join us. Yes. Welcome, Sorry Russ. about that. Um, <laughs> so let me ask you something, Tom. How is that different than, than um, failing somebody's head-end router or the router that connects to those same 10,000 devices? Are you saying the choke point doesn't exist if there's no NAT? I'm not saying the choke point doesn't exist. I'm saying that with a properly architected, well, well, let's just say it, with a properly architected internet that uses V6 addressing where we don't need to NAT things, I can have my host fail over to a different router as opposed to I have to go through this device because it's doing a translation for me. I mean, when you think about, yeah. uh, look, look, look at SD-WAN. SD-WAN is giving us more connectivity options upstream, whether it be, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, MPLS line or a, a broadband circuit or even an LTE modem. Well, why, why can't we do that with three separate boxes? Ah, yeah, well, see. So, 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 let me, so let me ask something. Let me ask something about that. Why is it that a properly architected application can't roll over to a different IP address whether or not there's NAT in the middle? Is this really a NAT problem or is this really an application development architecture problem? 
It's um, a nap problem. It's a nap problem. Anyone <laughs> I don't think it's a nap problem. Sorry. I think it's well, an architecture of the application problem. <laughs> that may be, We've been whining about architecture this, of applications for years. <laughs> you may be, you actually, you are correct in one form. But anyone that's ever done pen testing can tell you with absolute certainty, do I want to try to fail a like a high-end carrier grade router or even a high-end branch router? Or do I want to try to fail a middle box with a state table in it? Give me the state table box all day long, every day, and I will knock it over. That is, a, that is the real problem with that, that whole scenario. Right. But let's back up again and say, why is it that we even have the NATs in the first place? Why is it that we have that state built that way? It's because the well, applications we, aren't built correctly. That's why. No, we have the NAT because no one wanted to do the legwork to deploy V6 because it was expensive and hard and we could NAT instead and that was cheap and easy. That's the, that's the answer. All right. I think we're, I think we're diverting a bit. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to steer <laughs> us back on path. We had a NAT show. Ross, it was really good. You should go watch it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> if want to talk about architectures and that so and russ just disappears again <laughs> i know i'll just log like, out I, now. I quit you guys are you guys, <laughs> first you give me a hard time because i can't show up on time and then, and then you make fun of me because i wasn't on the last show either That's uh right. so anyway um so let, let's let's talk about slack Right. So, I mean, it, there's no secret uh, if you followed IPv6 when IPv6 was first rolled out, not in today's, you know, form of it. Uh, the, you know, the religious way of getting addresses, right, according to the IPv6 people who determine what IPv6 should be was Slack. It was auto assigned addresses but, but not but not all of them let's be honest not all of them this is an internal argument that's still long sure, today. sure absolutely i'm saying what actually came out to end users internally yeah. whatever what, what actually came out to the to the operators and networks was the best mm -hmm. way to deploy addressing is slack you're going to use your mac address to form your ip address the, the first part the network address is going to be based off of what network you're connected to the last part is going to be a host identifier that is the exact same on every network you ever join ever and no one yeah. saw a privacy concern with this well so i won't say nobody i'm saying have. extremes but yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so the thought was you'd have mac address randomization and stuff like that that would solve this problem but i can tell you that right now i have a draft in the itf for v6 router requirements and if i the draft says should have slack must have dhcp v6 available but not necessarily configured like must be able to support both should have should support Slack by default, must be able to support DHCP v6. So I will tell you that the community, there were probably 300 email messages over that, that setup or that set of requirements on the mailing list, the, the particular mailing list this draft is being worked on. And essentially what it came down to is no, you cannot require DHCP v6 to even exist in the box. Yeah, see, I, I have, I take exception with this. And this is really where our conversation was heading was the idea that somehow this address could identify part of who you are. And yeah. to me, and, well, to, and to me, it was about tracking. Now, I know that we have randomization, but we're using this just as a, as a jumping point for the conversation. So yeah. if, if your final part of your IP address is always the same, 
It's your MAC address with some extra bits added in there. Those extra bits are always the same. I can track you network to network where you've been. I can, yep. if I, let's just, let's just call out, you know, the 800 pound gorilla Facebook. Well, it's right. Well, it's even worse. Yeah. It's even worse. It's even worse than that because now with Slack, um, some regulator comes to you and says, Hey, or some, your house security guys come to you and say, Hey, you know, I saw somebody exfiltrate 25,000 user records from a certain IP address. And we need to know who owned that machine when that, at that particular date and time. Oh, good luck with that. Well, what, that's, what a, that's, a, that's an issue that security guys always bring up with V6 is that typically yeah. you have Mac tracking, right? So, on a campus or an enterprise network, you track a, a Mac to IP binding, right? Where yep. you get into V6. By the way, I read that draft and I loved it. I think it should stay the way it is. Uh, and other people can just get over it because we need those things, right? <laughs> but you can quote That's me it. on that. <laughs> That's going in the person that draft. Comments. That's right. For all Comments. <laughs> um, so, you know, and then, you know, you've got having to scrape the neighbor table as opposed to the ARP table, because there's probably an OID for pulling the ARP data out of the equipment, but there's probably not one to pull the neighbor table out. So you have two problems, right? You've got this masking that happened because of the privacy issue that you brought up. You know, the, uh, I can track your Mac address. So somebody didn't like that and they invented the, you know, the, the security privacy. prefixes, yeah. right? The privacy addressing, mm -hmm. which change every 30 minutes or 60 minutes or whatever. The problem that that brought on was that now I don't have this binding that I can easily find, right? I have to scrape the neighbor table every, I'm going to miss them, right? It's like sampled flow data and it's probably yeah, hammering the devices. Right. That's why things like DHCPv6 and requiring at the very least uh, RA guard and DHCPv6 relay and networking equipment is like absolutely critical because that's where you go and you get your bindings, right? You get them from your, you know, the, the DUID and the, um, and the V6 address gets signed via uh, DHCPv6. And so when I was doing architecture for, you know, uh, a campus area and, and we were talking a lot about V6 and, Engineer, how we're going to engineer that? That was a hard requirement. Is we had to we had to have that binding matching so that when we had clear requests or whatever else, we could go and we could find what those were. Yeah, right. And that exactly. was that was something that Slack didn't give, right? Yeah, and it's and it's difficult. And there's other things Slack doesn't give as well that are very difficult. Oh, like so many. I need, I, need to, I, I need to SSH into this host to find out what it's doing. Oh, sorry, it's a Slack address. I don't even know what the host address is, right? How do I even know? Unless I have dy dynamic DNS configured, how do I even know? Like, what, I, you know, there's some host on my data center fabric and I need to SSH to it. Great. And then, and then, yeah, and then you get into the problems, like say you have a dual stacked host. This isn't necessarily a privacy issue, it sort of is, um, but it's a definitely a security problem where you get an alarm for a V6 address that's hitting something. It's probably just a random dual stacked host. It's going to prefer, prefer V6. But you're, say, your bro NSM says, hey, this guy's doing such and such. I'm going to go ahead and black hole that, right? You're black holing a slash 128, very likely. But to properly black hole it, you're black holing probably a slash 64, which could have any number of other legitimate hosts in it. And you run into the whole problem again of do I, do I black hole a slash 24? 
for you know some one person yeah. doing something bad. Well, well, I'll make it even worse, Nick. There's PPR uh, preferred path routing or planned path routing that's out. The drafts that are out now, if you've read those, where essentially we're taking the slice 64 and breaking it up and giving each host multiple IP addresses, V6 addresses out of the same slash 64 and using those destination addresses to do traffic engineering through the network, uh, which is going to make everyone's life in this realm a lot, a lot more fun. <laughs> I, I, I want to pause for a second. I want to mash up something that Jordan and Russ kind of hit on. Um, you guys realize we were basically arguing about the color of wallpaper while the house burns down around us because it doesn't matter what your MAC address is. It doesn't matter what your IP address is. You're worried about privacy issues while you're sitting on a machine logged into 18 different applications that are all tracking things, putting yes. super cookies down on your machine. Yep. Yes, yes, that's yes. right. You, you are literally myopic enough to misunderstand that the IP address doesn't matter. All it is is a connection point. It, the tracking, the privacy violations are happening at a much higher layer. Oh, I, I agree with that. And, and you know, like all but it's of just this, one more. It's just yeah, one more. All of having this, the MAC address is just one more tracker is all it is. I was going to say, all of this assumes that everything else is working exactly the way you want it to. Yeah, that there's no absolutely. malicious software. That there's no, you know, other things going on on your system because you're right. And that's, and that's where I wanted to pull out. That was a perfect segue, Tom. Thank you. Uh, so, like, so really when it comes to components of privacy, this is only one very small piece. This addressing piece is a small piece. You brought up software and you, you talked specifically about trackers. So trackers are out there, right? So and super cookies, yeah. And super cookies. So the the idea being, you know, this is where Facebook, if you're logged into Facebook and you go to another site that that has a Facebook like <laughs> has a little thumbs up thing on the site where you can click and like it or share. If you have that, I mean we even have them on Network Collective, like like just so that you can easily share stuff. If you remain logged into Facebook to do that, they now know that you were there because it had to pull that from their website. Right, and, and, you, and you were logged in. So they get logs not only of when you were at their site, but you, they get logs of every place you go that's tied back to Facebook so you can like their stuff, which is just about everywhere, except for Nick Russo's site. And every time you click that like <laughs> button, static. Yeah. you can request three pages of checkboxes of information. If I want to know Yvonne's grandmother's brother's sister's political affiliation, I can ask for that. Right. My grandmother's brother's right. sister might need to be a friend of mine on Facebook, which very well may be. But yeah, I mean, but this brings up an interesting topic. No, no, actually, they actually don't because of social network graphs, because how do they know who you should be recommended to connect to? Yes, I was making more of a generational comment. I mean, <laughs> if, if my 80-year-old grandmother and her peers end up on Facebook, I will be flabbergasted other than, you know, family pictures. So but, Tom, used, Tom used a bad example. So the, your, the, husband's, right. your husband's sister, right? right. Like, or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. yeah. No, I, but, but I think the interesting thing that I think that we're dancing around here is what is even the relevance of no. that layer of data, the network layer of data, when we have significantly richer identifying data higher up the application stack, which goes right back to the, the way we think about the network is changing <laughs> in our world conversation. I can actually answer, 
I can answer this question because it's a specific problem uh, that was addressed back in Apple's iOS 9. So remember there was a little tick box that said we're going to randomize your MAC address whenever you try to connect to a wireless network? Why would I want to do that? Well, as it turns out, your phone, your laptop, and any other device that has a wireless chipset is constantly beaconing for every SSID that you've ever joined. So when you walk into a grocery store, your phone is sitting there saying, hey, are you H Honors? Hey, are you Linksys? And every time it sends that, it sends a MAC address. Well, some enterprising geniuses figured out that even if your device never joins the network, you can still fingerprint it, and so you can track it. Now, turns out iOS's MAC address randomization feature isn't as good as it might be otherwise because it requires your cellular data to be on and a couple of other things in order to actually truly randomize it. But that's what people are worried about. They're not worried about tracking your, your hardware address because someone's going to attack you or knock your machine offline or spoof you and try to steal a whole bunch of stuff. You know what they're doing? They're worried that people are going to be able to track me so that they're going to know what I'm buying and they're going to show me ads while they're logged into services that are doing that. Well, it's more than showing you ads, though. There's manipulation that goes on beyond that. There are, there are ways of manipulating you through social media. But the other thing is, too, Yvonne, there is another one. I know Tom wants to say something about that, but I'll just say the other thing is that it has been shown, for instance, that there are people who have figured out when certain financial transactions take place, even though those financial transactions are encrypted, just because of the volume and the places they're going, they can figure out what's going on financially in certain situations. Um, this for comes instance, down to metadata and slide channel attack. Metadata, that's right. I mean, yeah. for instance, Kraken was discovered because of metadata, straight up. You know, and and you can tell if you can. I'll just say this, this may be like really weird, but you can tell which company is thinking about buying another company or merging with another company by looking at DNS queries, for instance, in pattern. If you so, metadata you know, is significantly more valuable than knowing a random endpoint. Yeah. I mean, like I said in the beginning, when I grimaced, when you asked me if Nat gave you privacy, all I could think of was all the things that are reaching through that, talking to my browser, and the address doesn't matter at all, right? I'm not- Well, but it does. It's a small, small, small piece in a large ecosystem. But it is a piece of metadata that but can it, be- but, but it is a piece of- Sure. Again, your physical location. Let's, so let's, let's, this is another piece. So we're talking about the different components. We've talked about software and trackers. You also have malicious software, right? It's not just trackers. I mean, that's the one that's prevalent. Those are the ones that are more acceptable right? Because these are, these are big, large businesses doing things, but that's not the only thing tracking. There's also malicious software trying to track and get a profile of you as well. Um, and then, then there's, but now we're talking about location. Um, and so we talk about location, addressing plays a part in that. We talk about the fact that you shouldn't have, or you should like disable metadata and GPS on your photos of things that are sensitive. I remember years and years ago, it was one of the one of the Mythbuster guys, like their house got identified because they loaded up one picture of the outside of the house with that had the GPS metadata in it. And so, so let's just assume we get that all right. Now all of a sudden you can use the IP address to validate or further give depth because all of this profiling, whether it's for advertising intent or whether it's for attack intent or whatever is about accuracy. It's about getting an accurate profile of who you are and your address in any piece of information will be used to continue to correlate and add depth to that data and give additional points. And so addressing well, is part of it. I don't disagree with that. Addressing uh, is part of it, but it's a small part of it. If that was the only part, if everything else was set, you're good. Because the amount of profiling they'd actually be able to pull on you is pretty minor. 
Um, but the, but the, it's, it's, it's that in concert with the idea that, you know, if I can track your specific IP to a specific network at a specific time and figure out your pattern, right. And then correlate that with your shopping behavior or correlate that with, I don't know who you call at those places. There's lots of interesting data that can be, that can be. Yeah. I mean, I think, I just think that that is such a cryptic way. And, and frankly, it's, it's sort of an archaic way to track those things that it's just not, I don't know that I agree with that. I think, I think it was more important previously. It's less important now. I don't think it's archaic. I think people are still using it. I, I think, think it's just people that haven't figured out the better way to do it might still be using it. Oh, I'm not saying exclusively. I'm saying it's adding data points. I guarantee that's, you. That's true. That's true. Facebook no, is tracking your source IP every single time you access their site. They're using that data. Oh, absolutely. Now, if that data gives them some piece of information they can glean from it, then absolutely they will add that to their mechanism for determining information about you. Yeah. yeah, I think we're saying the same thing. It we was are. an important yeah. piece of data. It's less important now. I think we just don't necessarily yeah, align on the yeah. level of less important. <laughs> and, and the last thing I came up with, and you guys might, so components of privacy, we have addressing, we have software, we have location. So we talk about GPS addressing kind of falls in that a little bit. We have correlation of data. Like that's another thing is being able to correlate all these different pieces. I think Russ kind of insinuated that. Um, also is encryption. We talk about encryption as a mechanism to kind of protect us from invasion of privacy, but with what Russ brought up is the fact that that doesn't necessarily always guarantee. Um, there's always a point at which it has to become decrypted. Is that machine owned? Is there a tracker on that machine? There's, there's the side channel attack and the metadata attack. Like that's, that's another avenue there yeah, so as we, well. So, so, we use some, so we use some major service for email and we SSL to the major services server and then it's un-SSL'd at their server and uh, then they can read it just fine. Well, I mean, this so, is, well, they can read it. And so, so could the NSA at one point, probably still, yeah, right? But exactly. The, I mean, so, isn't, that, isn't that how the NSA completely violated Google's network is they, they tapped a trunk between data centers. And so yeah, while, and while you encrypted the mail in transit to them, they didn't encrypt the mail in transit between their data centers. And so they were just able to listen in and get what they wanted. Yeah. I mean, that's at yeah. least according to the documents that Snowden released, right? Like that's, that's... <laughs> Those are the I things mean, that you got to see. Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's way more interesting. Yeah. Well, we, I mean, we've, had discussions about that at, we've had discussions about that at Networking Field Day. When you have a firewall, it can do SSL decrypt and inspection. And what, what's the difference to the end user? They don't care. They just still see a green check mark. It's right. encrypted. Yeah, that's right. I it's hate encrypted. man in the middle like that. And I always call it that man in the middle because that's what, what it is. Right. It's exactly not, yeah, it's a man in the middle. It's not SSL proxy. It's a hack. Like we, yeah. you just are yeah. voluntarily submitting yourself to a hack when you go through. Right. It's a man in the middle attack. It's just an approved man in the middle attack. Exactly. In this case, I agree to be attacked. Like what? But what <laughs> one of the interesting things to me though, is when we think about an encryption, the horsepower to do that man in the middle decryption is significant. And the more, and we're encrypting more and more traffic on the wire all the time, right? 80% yeah. now of traffic is encrypted. Um, on, on your enterprise network. And so I think the interesting part of this conversation to me is what does this mean for what we have relied on as security visibility tools like IPS, for example. I have made the bold and frightening statement to some network engineers that I know that really the role of IPS is dying. Um, I don't know that lots of people realize that yet, um, especially in the enterprise. And I know some really incredible 
um, folks who live and breathe IPS every day, um, write snort rules in their sleep. But at the end of the day, I don't believe that is going to be in the next 10 years, the way that we're identifying threats and traffic on our network. I think it's going to be by looking at the metadata that we've been talking about and flow data yep. and, and information about the traffic, not the traffic itself. That's how we're already working on this. That's exactly what it's going to be. It's going to be correlation of data that we have that may potentially seem unrelated. You know, it, you can look at things in the flow data like the payload and, you know, the duration of flows and the source and dust. And you can sort of start to see patterns in, you know, this is this and this is this. And you can really get a whole lot of data. What, what, what I think makes the people that use the IPSs twitchy. Uh, and, you know, and I've been using like Bro NSM, which I mentioned before, since like 2002. So, you know, I like tools like this where I can see things. It's the fact that you're making it's it's basically an assumption, right? You can make it you can make a uh, a guess with a high level of certainty that this thing is, you know, bad behavior happening. But unless you can decrypt it, it's an assumption. And that's what makes a lot of security people just like eyes water, right? Because they don't like assumptions. They like certainties. We keep dancing well, around I mean, this. There's, well, there's, there's research in this area, right, Nick? I mean, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but there were some Israeli researchers who actually showed that they could figure out where a camera on a drone was pointed by looking at the, looking at the bandwidth utilization on the backlink to the controller because you can make certain assumptions about this, the rate at which um, the rate at which keyframes are being transmitted based on the speed at which the object in question is changing. And if you can, if you can measure the rate at which the keyframes are being sent versus the rate at which the object in question is changing, you can actually tell what the drone is looking at without right. actually decrypting the data. So, I mean, there's like all sorts of things that you don't even think about in this realm that are, uh, but I mean, that's an assumed, it's a good assumption and it's an educated assumption, but I think that goes back to Nick's point that, that you can look at that and it's going to give you, you can give you a high level of probability, but you aren't actually seeing the keyframes. You're seeing a change in data patterns. Right. That's exactly so I, have, right. I have a working prototype for this, for network uh, analytics that essentially triggers off of an alarm of some kind that's a known issue. And then it will step through flow data, syslog data and all SNMP counters other things to figure out if it's uh you know high likelihood of something else happening also across the yeah. network and it you know it's it's a that's the way things are going to go i mean i'm definitely biased but because i've been working yeah. on it, but. So, so i think i think that at one time i remember working on some military encryptors that i probably can't talk too much about but some encryptors when i was in the air force uh, that uh, actually had continuous stream output and what they did was they figured out what the highest stream rate would be necessary to send whatever they might send. And they always sent it that. And then they just filled it with garbage. You well, know, I mean, they just it, there's, they practical, just there's practical applications of that even in, you know, personal. I mean, if you, if yeah. you, if you don't want people gleaning information from your social media profiles, it's good to throw people for a loop. You know, don't yeah. not have a profile, have a profile that you throw misinformation at. I mean, like I hear this all the time. It sounds kind of crazy, but the reality is, is that, you know, uh, noise helps because people are having to take a lot of data, put it together and make, you know, either assumptions or correlate data to make, mm -hmm. you know, good, uh, good estimations about who you are. You can, you can kind of thwart that. 
Um, so going back to going back to MeetSpace with that, there was actually used to be a website. I don't know if it's still around or not, where you could upload the the uh, the UPC code or the the QR code from your supermarket um, or whatever store loyalty card. And then people would go out and print like 10 different loyalty cards for that supermarket and use them randomly when they went through. So if everybody uploaded their cards and used them (laughs) randomly, (laughs) it blew the data collection mechanism that they had in place. Interesting. And on that note, we'd like to take a moment to tell you about today's sponsors. What is your company doing for disaster recovery? How about business continuity? When was the last time you updated your disaster recovery plan? What about an actual test of that plan? If you couldn't definitively answer each of those questions, it might be time to start seriously thinking about how to ensure your business can continue to function if you were to lose critical services unexpectedly. And CoreBTS can help. CoreBTS is a capable and experienced partner who can help you think through the processes, procedures, and technology that will keep your business moving in the face of the unpredictable. If you could use some help developing a DR strategy, or maybe another set of eyes to review a plan you already have in place, please reach out to CoreBTS to see how they can help. The easiest way to do that is just to shoot over a quick email to network.collective at corebts.com to get the conversation started. Again, that's network.collective at corebts.com. Linux has long been the prevailing operating system of the data center. It has transformed how compute resources are designed, deployed, and managed. Yet the data center network has been slow to adopt the power of Linux networking. Most networks still operate with antiquated monolithic technology stacks that reduce your options when it comes to unleashing the full power and flexibility of your network. It doesn't have to be this way. Cumulus is using Linux to transform networking operations the exact same way that Linux has fundamentally changed servers. Now, networkers can be empowered to build highly efficient and flexible networks that serve their use cases, rather than a prescriptive, rigid approach to solve networking challenges. For those of you that know and use Linux regularly, you can manage your switches just like you manage your servers with config files, scripting, and well-established automation tools. But for those of you who aren't as familiar running Linux as an operating system, Cumulus has some built-in tools to help you without the need to become a Linux systems administrator. For example, NCLU, the network command line utility, provides a familiar command line configuration interface that translates familiar stanzas into the Linux networking operating system. And tools like NetQ give you visibility and actionable insight into how your network is running. For those that want to dig deeper and learn how to take advantage of all the opportunities that Linux provides, Cumulus is offering you, our listeners, a completely free ebook on Linux fundamentals. With over 90 pages, this Linux Fundamentals ebook walks you through the history of Linux, some basics on how Linux operates, and then digs into how Linux handles networking and interconnection. If this sounds like a resource that could help you take a step forward to being a better engineer, or if you're interested in adding soul to your network, head over to cumulusnetworks.com slash networkcollectivelinux to get your copy of this ebook and to start a conversation with the folks over at Cumulus Networks. Again, check out cumulusnetworks.com slash networkcollectivelinux. But you know, we live in a world where 
our technology now identifies habits that we don't even know that we have, right? Like sometimes, um, for example, my husband and I have gotten in the habit of going to dinner at a certain time of the week after a certain event. And, and I don't know, last week we weren't able to go and my phone popped up and said, it's 15 minutes to the local restaurant. And I'm like, I'm not going to the, and then I'm like, oh my gosh, we've been going every week on this day and my phone knows that about me and unless we know where all those settings are and all those hooks are to turn those things off um you know we've got more watching us than than our network and our mac address so absolutely and and so speaking of that and to segue into something else there are um and this is something i've been using at home for quite a while there are little distributions that you can get that run on like a raspberry Pi that like become your local resolver. Cause like everything in the network, if DNS doesn't work, it makes it look like it doesn't work. Right. So if you control your resolver, your power is nearly limitless in what you can do. So um, there's a little distribution called Pihole that you can run on a raspberry Pi and it emulates. Well, no, it doesn't emulate it. It literally is your resolver and it has a block list of all these tracking and advertising and it just it pie holes it you know it black holes it so you just don't see it so like i don't even see probably three-fourths at least of the ads and tracking mechanisms when i'm at home because i black hole all that stuff and it is a shocking amount of queries that happen for that type of thing yeah anytime tens of thousands an hour yeah anytime you do a poll on a website any type of major website only like, you know, like 2%, 3% of it is actual content. There's so much of the content that's, that's embedded tracker because there's so much money in this, right? It's, it's, not, it's not malicious. And I say that in the sense that it's, it's economic. It's not, they're not out to get you. They're out to advertise it to you in a way that makes sense. And people are paying good money for this information. And so when you do this, yeah, I mean, one of the, I mean, I won't run a browser now that doesn't kill scripts, like I just, you know, I own, I have to allow the script. And so essentially every time I go to a new website, it's generally broken um, until, until I tell it which, what can run and what can't run because I take a look so, at what's going so on I, because I don't want people tracking me that way. Right. So I want to make sure, you know, that, that this is going to sound pretty crazy maybe a little bit, but I mean, we, we tend to underestimate that people spend a lot of money to advertise. Therefore, they know there is an ROI or a return on investment in that advertising. They know it. And we tend to underestimate that advertising itself is a form of manipulation of people. I mean, it's not, it can be done well, it can be done poorly. It just is what it is. Obviously, when you advertise, you're expecting a return on that investment, whatever that return on investment is. And you're expecting a nudge of certain kind to get people to buy your product or whatever it is. Again, I'm not saying advertising is bad. I'm just saying it's the end of a continuum that we don't think about that moves further down the stream that people don't, don't want to acknowledge that exist. I mean, uh, there are many more methods and mechanisms people can use that I've heard advertisers say, I can push this button, make people buy 2,000 pizzas in the Denver area tonight. And you're like, you can make them? Well, I mean, I know enough about their habits. I know who influences them. I know what, you know, I know what trigger, what news story triggers them to go buy a pizza or whatever it happens to be, what Facebook post or whatever it is. And I think we kind of underestimate that that's where a lot of this data actually goes in the long run. And we kind of play that down because we're part of that ecosystem somehow or whatever. So, I mean, there's, there's a, 
um, I mean, I don't want to sound like conspiracy theorist or anything. I just, this is just when you work in certain places, you find out that this is what's being done. I don't think that's right? conspiracy at all. I think, I think, Not either. I think most people would agree. And at least I think most people know that, you know, the internet, I mean, it's really funny. There's a saying out there. It's usually true. It's like 95% true, right? If you're not paying for the product, you are the product, right? Like yeah. it's not yeah. always true, but generally it's true. It's yeah. the way you need to think about it when you approach things. Except, except, except network collective. Well, I, <laughs> I mean, I mean, like no. there, right? We advertise on our show. We do advertise. We have sponsors yes. on this we show. Do. Right. And so yeah. those, those sponsors, they're looking for something and we're not going to lie. Yeah, they are. There's an ROI from them. Right. Yeah. They, so we're telling you, you know, this, this show, <laughs> I don't know if this is, you know, Core BTS and Cumulus, they're sponsoring this show. They want you to go check them out. <laughs> right. Do you know what I'm That's saying? Right. Like, it's not, it's not malicious, their intent, but they are, I don't, no. I, manipulation no, is one of those words that everyone kind of goes, ah, but they are trying to convince you that, that, yep. their, that their product is worth going to see, which it is, by the way, you should go check out for BTS. So there's a couple of in there. That was actually really well done, smooth. <laughs> so there's a couple of differences, though, I think that a lot of people don't think about, and maybe it's a generational thing. Like myself growing up, and I think everyone else probably on this podcast, we were always subject to advertising, right? You turn the television on and there's an ad for Play-Doh or an ad for Masters of the Universe action figures or whatever, right? Yeah, absolutely. And when you're driving, I know, right? Or, or a Pee Wee Herman doll, that's right there. <laughs> Not so, yeah, but yeah, that's so weird. <laughs> but, but, but so they were inserted. You couldn't get, you couldn't fast forward through those like you can now and unless you, you were recording something. But they your- were also universal. They weren't, Target. And they were unidirectional. They were That's unidirectional, right. right? So it was, I'm f- being fed this, but I'm not giving them anything, right? They can't collect any data on me. And I think the biggest difference now and the, and the struggle that a lot of privacy advocates have is that I don't necessarily want to have my data collected. Like, I don't necessarily want to have these things to use the service, but it comes back down to if you're not paying for the product, you are the product, Right. So blocking those things will cripple the services a lot of times. I'll pause right there because I, 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 I agree with you, but I, I have a quibble with one point. It's not that we as people who respect our privacy don't want people collecting our data. We just don't want them collecting data that we don't know about. And that's really the whole thing behind GDPR. GDPR in Europe is not designed to prevent people from collecting your data. That's why the day after it premiered, everybody had to click on a little box that said, we were gonna collect your data and you had to agree to it or you couldn't use the service. But the difference is, is that GDPR gives us the ability to go in and determine what data is being collected about us. And I think that's basically what it boils down to. When we log onto the internet with our device, we are tacitly agreeing that people can connect to our device to deliver the data that we have requested. What we don't agree to is a tracking script running in the background that's silently collecting my bookmark info in a different browser. That's where the privacy issue comes into play. And the issue that we have is that most of these people are driven, just like Russ said, they're driven to make money somehow. And the problem that we have with big data today is that people think that every little piece of data is going to be valuable at some point in the future 
that we can't possibly comprehend. So they collect as much as they can get away with and they store it for as long as possible in the hopes that just like, just like dinosaur bones become oil someday, eventually my bookmarks are gonna be valuable to somebody else down the line. And that's where I have a problem in a nutshell. I don't want you storing things that I didn't explicitly give you permission for, for an indeterminate amount of time in the hope that one day you can make money off of it. That's so, a very so important I'll, point that makes yeah. that I agree with. Yeah. And, and and to make it worse, we're getting to the point now where some companies at least, and I won't name names because I'm not entirely certain all the time, but you know, we've all seen the stories and thought about it, are at the point where they're starting to say, well, people believing this is good and people believing that is bad. So now I'm not just using this to make money. I'm actually using this to shape culture. And I mean, that, that's the scary outcome. That's scarier. That's even scarier than the making money to me right there. Right. That's and, even, that's right. Oh, definitely. And, and we, I mean, like, I don't know how crazy that is. So, so I mean, like, I, I'm going to say that is a bit tinfoil hat, right? The idea of, of manipulating opinion and thought, but there's a lot of value in that. So let's, let's just take politics and government out of the, you know, but ju just in general, propaganda has been, propaganda has been a thing, right? Like it's, it's out forever. there it's forever. It's, it's been a tool that governments and that entities have used to convince people how much better can your propaganda be if you really know your audience. And we already know the yeah. answer to that because we already know the advertising is that much better when you really know your audience and what is propaganda, but advertising for a purpose. And yeah, so exactly. We, we've seen that already, and I'll go back to the GDPR example. The one minute after midnight when GDPR went, came live, anybody in Europe who was trying to access a United States newspaper got a block page. Well, how would we know that? Well, we can geolocate your IP. That's pretty easy. But once we know we can do that, it's not a stretch to, to show people a page that we want them to see. And it's, it's real easy to do. But the problem is, is that the technology has gone light speed ahead of where we thought it was. Because let's face it, 15 years ago, the idea that I could pull up my, my flip phone and have a car show up out of nowhere without having to call anybody to pick me up and take me somewhere was fantasy. Being able to pay for my coffee with my phone was a fantasy. And now look at where we are. The technology keeps evolving and the things that people are going to do with it are going to keep evolving right there alongside of it. And you're right. It's no stretch to have a service that says, you know what, I can make people think the sky is green tomorrow. Well, and there's a maturity curve here, right? I mean, and we are, we are still in the teenager days of the internet and it's still very wild, wild west. And I think we're, we're learning <laughs> and, and we're trying to figure out how to self-regulate, um, we're just, I mean, we're not there yet. It's new enough that, that we as a people are still figuring it out. I agree with that. But I think the challenge in here is that, is that there's so much momentum now because of the money that's involved. I mean, so we look at this specifically. I mean, we'll take BGP. We'll put it all the way back to a specific networking function, right? BGP gets hijacked all the time. People mess up BGP all the time, whether intentionally or unintentional. They mess it up because of the fact that someone doesn't do it right or whatever. We've talked about the security mechanisms. We know what can work, right? But there's so much momentum that to, that to, to make that happen, no one is going to flip the switch tomorrow and make that happen. It's just not going to happen because there's so much momentum. So even though we're growing up, I agree with that. We're growing up. We're learning. No, wait a minute. We now have all of this information that's out there. I don't know that we haven't already kind of exceeded the momentum required before we can turn the ship. Like, I don't, I don't know that 
it, knowing is not half the battle here. I think knowing is like 5% of the battle, right? Like great 80s reference. <laughs> yes. So so you're there's there's a little bit of information in there. I think that turning the boat is one thing, but the real problem is the speed at which change happens and the speed at which all of these amazing things happen, you know, that we don't expect to be able to do like Tom ordering a car or paying for his food with his phone, right? No one would have ever thought about that. The techno- but that technology has moved at light speed compared to one, the people that regulate things that understand it, right? That doesn't exist. Like the people that regulate it have no clue how it works. And two, the folks that need to chase it down the legality of things is like decades behind uh, what what they need. I mean, they don't have the tool set for the most part, or they don't have enough people that have the right tool set to do the things that need to do. And they don't have the legal authority, at least in the United States, and I would wager probably almost everywhere to do a lot of the things that they need to do because by the time they get to the point where they have that, it's changed four times already. I think more scary is the fact that the people who should be enforcing and looking out for us are the people who are using it. Well, I mean, so like, like that, that's the more cynical side of me that comes out here is the fact that when we look at specifically back at how privacy was being violated, I mean, you know, targeted advertising is kind of scary. Like, you know, it kind of gets a little creepy, but I understand the purpose and I understand the motivation. And you know what? I actually get something out of it. So rather than getting some random ad that has absolutely no relevance to me whatsoever, they actually target me with something that, that's, that's useful. I'm constantly reminded of that pair of shoes that I decided not to buy. Exactly. <laughs> right, right. And so that's there to I'm me. I'm not sure how useful that is, though. <laughs> to me, it's a combination of the fact that it's the people who are supposed to. And I say that broadly, right? When we think about our government and these entities, they're supposed to be people who are looking out for the citizens. And then we find out that, oh, wait a minute, the NSA has been completely spying on the citizens, not intentionally American citizens, but wrapping all their data into it. I mean, like that's been happening. And so our government is, they 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 have a perverse interest in fixing it because if they fix it, they lose that ability. Well, it's even worse than that because the government has a direct interest in being able to manage people's expectations, go back to propaganda, right? I mean, we have our government buying zero days. I mean, like there's a problem with this. But but I'm just saying in general, even beyond that, you know, the government itself has a, has a vested interest in managing people's expectations and beliefs. And here is this power laying in front of you, and you're being asked to regulate it out of existence. Really? So no, what, I, what, no. What you've got, and 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 I thought about this the other day. What you've got is you got a continuum. You've got my mother on one side who believes everything she reads in the news because when she grew up, the news was trustworthy, but she doesn't want anybody to know anything about her. She's a very private person. And most people of my mother's generation who are kind of in the baby boomer stretch, they're very, very, very private people. So the, the idea that an ad from Amazon works on them freaks them out. How do they know I wanted to buy that car? Well, you've been searching for it for the last 20 minutes. On the flip side, you've got my son who really doesn't care if people know who he is. Because he's grown up in a world where privacy is not an expectation anymore. Everybody, everything about you is online somewhere. He wants a Twitter account. He's not old enough to get one. And when I asked him, what are you going to do when people know who you are? He goes, dad, everybody already knows who I am anyway. But he is very discerning about the things that he reads. He constantly questions things. 
he I mean, doesn't believe that Wikipedia is full of factual information, even though everything has to be cited, because he knows that information is malleable and can be changed. And so we're the people on this podcast are kind of stuck in that middle where we're, we're kind of private people, but we understand we have to give up a little privacy in order to get the things we want. Likewise, we still kind of trust some news outlets, but not all of them because, you know, maybe they're making some stuff up and they're using my demographic information that they've stolen from me or borrowed to make up those determinations. So I think what you're going to see is in 10 or 15 years when we become my mom, where we're the older generation who's less trustworthy and my kids and my grandkids grow up in a world where privacy is not an expectation, or maybe by the time I have grandkids, their privacy expectation has pushed back against the, the people that are controlling it, and maybe they're back to a more private outlook, it's going to feel radically different. I mean, look at, look at Minority Report, where you go to the opposite extreme of, I look at something and it immediately plays a targeted advertisement because of my retinal scan. You know what? There are people that are horrified by that. And there's some ad execs out there that love that idea. Google Glass, so, so baby. Would, yeah. So I would say, Tom, I'm already seeing the pushback in my own family. Like my kids are extremely private, believe it or not. And so they're 20 and, and 17 or 16 and they're 17 and they look, you have to ask Lori. Don't ask me. <laughs> anyway. I hope but, your kids don't watch the show. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> They would laugh and go, well, that's our dad. There you go. <laughs> anyway, um, so they're already that way. They don't have Facebook. Well, they do have Facebook accounts that they don't use. What they use on Snapchat, you know, they do some selfies and this, that, and the other. But by and large, you would never know where they are. Like, the, you would never know that we're in Oak Island this week or Raleigh this week or Montreal. Well, or where. Knows, but. No, well, I, whatever. Well, you now know we've got where I line by line. Yeah, whatever. But I'm just saying, you know. It's that discerning choice. They choose not to tell people where they are because they yeah, know that if right. they do, then it goes to the whole world. Whereas my mom, mm -hmm. when she posts things on Facebook, she doesn't realize that all of my friends of my friends can read them. And so people are like, your mom's a little crazy sometimes. I'm like, well, yeah, I love her all the same. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the difference between the way the technology works. And, and, and people have to make that conscious decision. They have to choose to want to be private. They have to choose to want to, like, like Nick said, they have to choose to want to get rid of the advertising from their life, whether they use pie hole or ghostery or, or what have you. But they have to be informed about it. And I think that's probably what's going to save us in the long run is not developing technology that blocks advertising. It's not going to be uh, creating legal regulations that force people to do things the way we want them to be done. It's people having the enough intelligence to understand, like Jordan said, if you're not paying for it, you are probably the product. All right, uh, we're getting close to the end here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask one more absolute question um, just to make Nick squirm a little bit more. So, uh, so the question is, is privacy dead or is there hope? What do you guys think? Well, we'll go one by one. Nick, what do you think? I think there's hope. Uh, and I think it's mostly what Tom said. It's education. All right. We already know Tom's take. There's hope. Russ, what do you think? I think there's hope. And I think the hope is in the, a, a new generation coming along that understands and is very cynical about this and starts taking this, uh, not, not, I don't want to say seriously, but that they just say, no, I'm just not putting that information out there. I'm done with this. Yvonne? I think there's hope, but I think our, the way we look at even this terminology is going to be very different in the future. Um, 
yeah, it's, 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 we aren't, privacy is not going to mean the same things in the future. So I, I actually sit on the other side from all of you guys. I think, I think we're too far. I think privacy is dead. I think the idea that, um, that you're going to be able to hold your information back. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't. Um, but there is just so much technology and far too much interest and far much, too much momentum behind the people who are, are doing it, that it's almost like, I don't know, you would need a revolution. And I don't think we have that kind of, that kind of oomph for our privacy. And so on that note, <laughs> on that uh, note, does Nick have a data point, just an d- interesting data point. In the last week, I've had 250,000 DNS queries. I've blocked 24,000 of them, which is roughly 10%. And that's with very liberal, like I let a lot of stuff in, like I let my Amazon ads in and my Google ads and things like that. So that's mostly just tracking stuff yep. on, on my home network with four people here. That's a lot of DNS queries on your own network with four people. Very technology-focused family, apparently. Uh, so anyway, I think that concludes another episode of Network Collective. Uh, before we go, I want to give everyone an opportunity to share where they can find or where they could be found. Uh, Tom, where can people find you? And I am all over the place. You uh, are. You You're on, if you go to the homepage of Cisco.com right now, <laughs> some of Tom's yeah. work is right at the top. Yeah. So if you want to follow me personally, you can always check out networkingnerd.net. That's my personal blog. You can also go to my Twitter handle, which is networking nerd. If you want to check out what I do for a living, you can go to techfieldday.com where we do video series that star uh, the wonderful people who are on this podcast, um, as well as Gestalt IT, where I do a lot of writing. And uh, you can check out the Twitter handles, techfieldday and Gestalt IT to see a lot of the stuff that we do there. Awesome. Nick? Oh, I can be found at most places, all social outlets at, at Braulio, Um and been hanging out quite a bit in the Network Collective um, members Slack as well. Yay, plug. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of good conversations that happen in it there. It has. It's been actually, it's been fantastic in there. How about you, Russ? Where can people find you? Oh, you can find me in the Network Collective Slack. The members Slack, of course, that's a good place to get in touch with me. And um, you can find me at rule11.tech and you can always find me on the Network Collective. Awesome. Yvonne? Yep. Um, I'm on the blog at esharp.net and on Twitter at Sharp Network, uh, LinkedIn some too. But yes, and also uh, communicating with folks on Slack and, you know, Twitter, all kinds of things. Everywhere. Everywhere. Uh, I'm, a little, I'm a little bit of the same. If I, if there's a social media site, there's a good chance that I'm there. You find me at uh, Twitter at BC Jordo. Uh, my blog, which I write at occasionally, is jordanmartin.net, obviously Network Collective. Um, if you like this episode, there are many, many more like it that are available at the thenetworkcollective.com. Uh, from there, you can figure out how to subscribe to us wherever we're at. Um, and whichever format works best for you. We release every episode, both video and audio. So if you like to see our smiling faces, there's Vimeo. If, uh, if you like to listen, there's iTunes, all the other podcatchers. Uh, we'd also love to chat with you uh, on social media. Like we talked about, we're just, well, we're not everywhere for Network Collective, but we are on Twitter as at NetCollectivePC. Uh, we're on Facebook and LinkedIn. You can just search for Network Collective there and find us. Um, also, don't forget to check out the NetworkCollective.com to see how Network Collective membership can help you take the next step in your career. And we'll see you next time. 